All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. You got Michael's one and two, Vance Yano. Welcome, fellas. Good to be back. What's up? Tea today, Vance? I'm always drinking green tea. I don't drink coffee anymore. So, oh, green wow. tea boy. Why? I just, you know, I drank so much coffee one time where I like really freaked myself out. Like one big day. <laughs> yeah. That's really, all, really all came to an end at that point. So now I do green tea. What what day was it? Oh, it was, it was in Venice. I forget when, but I remember just being at a restaurant, being like, "I need to get out of here immediately." I think I'm about to have a freak out. <laughs> How much coffee do you need to drink to freak yourself out off coffee? I mean, like seven or eight cups of like strong stuff that'll that'll do that to you. Mike used to drink a solid five or six a day. Yeah, I still drink a pretty disgusting amount of coffee. I'll drink like I have a French press and I'll drink the whole thing myself. <laughs> I'll drink the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Make a pot of coffee. Just, yeah. Just to the face. Put a lid on that okay. thing. Well, apparently, we, uh, apparently we're not going to be able to drink Diet Coke anymore. Well, no. Aspartame is rumored to be coming out next month as a potential carcinogen. I thought we already knew that. I thought it was like that. Yeah. You, for 20 years, it's been like Diet Coke gives you cancer, but it's so good. So good. <laughs> Worth it. I'm like leaking aspartame right now. It will be sad. Yeah. All right, let's get. Why don't we get into the the content this week? You guys want to start with Prime Trust? I feel like we kind of got to start there. Yana, you want to give us the rundown? Um, sure. Here's the rundown. Um, all right. So Prime Trust is. I think we've talked about this before, but Prime Trust is a um, basically an infrastructure provider for what I'd say are like earlier stage crypto companies. So if you're a seed stage company, just you just raise. Let's say you're building a consumer app, and you let's say you're building a like a BlockFi style app. They will give you the ability to have all the middleware and the back end, and they take care of all of that. So, like all the KYC AML, that's actually really complicated to do. All the onboarding, kind of like the separate accounts for your customers, that's actually pretty complex to set up. And it might take, you know, 12 to 18 months to set up. But Prime Trust is like a white labeled solution to be able to set up all that stuff in, let's call it 30 to 60 days. So, you see a lot of seed and Series A companies using Prime Trust. Uh, and then once they get to like series B or series C, they start kind of chipping away at the back end and, and usually they, they get off of prime trust. But the reason this is all relevant, um, prime trust basically just blew up in the last month. Um, and here's kind of the timeline that I know of. So June 7th, uh, it starts leaking that prime. So this is, we're recording at June 29th. So, so 22 days ago starts to kind of leak that prime trust is in trouble and specifically got announced or got maybe leaked that they were raising a $25 million emergency round. A day later, gets announced that BitGo is acquiring Prime Trust. So BitGo is one of the longest standing, like most reputable custodians. They were going to acquire 100% of Prime Trust. A couple of days later, June 13th, Bank, B-A-N-Q, who's a Prime Trust subsidiary, filed for bankrupt, uh, bankruptcy protection in Nevada. And when they d- dug into their assets in the filing, it showed that they had 17 million of assets with liabilities of five and a half million. So everyone's like, okay, that looks fine. A week later, June 20th, Prime Trust halted deposits and withdrawals. Sent out an email saying we're halting withdrawals, uh, halting deposits of both crypto and fiat. 
a day later, June 21st, this is a week ago now, they the trust, Prime Trust, sought receivership from the uh, from Nevada uh, after they got a cease and desist order. So then everyone's like, oh, maybe this is actually pretty bad over there. Day later, June 22nd, Bitco terminated their plans to buy Prime Trust. Uh, they said they did a bunch of due diligence and came to the hard decision to terminate the acquisition. And then June 27th, um, Nevada asked the court to impound the assets and all related property of Prime Trust, saying that they were uh, short of uh, being able to pay back their outstanding crypto-based obligations. However, so that 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 all basically just seems like kind of the unwind of, of Prime Trust. However, the kicker is, uh, there's two kickers. One is, it sounds like, and it looks like, the FDI, FID alleged that Prime Trust lost access to their legacy wallets in 2021. So if you were a Prime Trust, I talked to a couple of Prime Trust customers uh, today and yesterday, they could actually see on chain the the assets of Prime Trust and it looks like they had them, but it turns out, so it wasn't like they were like leaving the system, but it turns out you could still see them there because Prime Trust couldn't even access them themselves. So then what they did, and this was back in 2021. So anyone who's onboarded onto Prime Trust, I know several companies who have since 2021, they've been insolvent basically since then. They haven't had access to that money. So that's why I think this is like, this is going to be, whoever was running Prime Trust at the time should, you know, that's a, that's fraud. And then the second thing is uh, to try to make, I think Michael might know more about this than I do, but to try to make back the loss of customer funds or of funds, they basically took the remaining customer funds and YOLO'd it on like a couple of trades to try to make it back. And uh, you guys have seen how the market's been the last several months. It did uh, not go well for them to say the least. So today where we stand is Prime Trust lost access to some of their funds in 2021. They used customer funds to try to make it back. They today owe a million dollars of crypto to their customers and about $80 million of fiat to their customers. Um, and of the crypto that they owe, 88% of their crypto assets today are in Audius token, Audio token, which is uh, Audius's token. So it's not looking good for Prime Trust, I will say. So they're very bullish on music NFTs, basically. <laughs> Cooper, Cooper has got to them. Yeah, he has infiltrated. But, so, so I think there's another variable here too, which is interesting. I don't actually know where the fiat came from for them to be able to go off and yellow this. Prime Trust, almost exactly a year ago, at least the announcement went through, raised $100 million dollars to be a custody solution that was going to expand into IRAs and said they were going to expand <clears throat> into crypto staking. Like if they, if all of this is true and, and you know this is all put together in a complaint that was filed, I think in the last week, <clears throat> if all this is true, it looks like they took the investor capital and tried to be able to use that to, to YOLO back into these assets to be able to get, get them back. The tough part is, and I don't exactly know how the technology was set up. Um, you kind of touched on it. If you're able to see the assets on chain and, and kind of my understanding of how this would work is they had basically the, the wallet addresses that were generated from the public key, private key pair, but they had lost the private key. So when they were setting up the infrastructure, they, they, it's sort of like you can send to that address, but that address doesn't have access to the private key to be able to send from that address. And that's the key point. It's like an email, right? You know, you can receive emails, but you can't actually send them from that if you don't have the password. <clears throat> I think that might be the case of what happened, which, you know, is, which is crazy because from the outside looking in, I mean, every single 
custody solution says you have to have segregated accounts, you have to be able to track them on chain. And <clears throat> if anybody hasn't sent from those accounts before, you know, there's no way to know whether or not the private key is in access of you know the solution that they're trusting as the custodian here. So I, I think ultimately we're going to get to the bottom of this to see what happens. The The tough part is we have to get through another, what looks to be another fraudulent case of something. The good news is, you know, Audius, audio token, and not, you know, one of the top tokens that people are uh, tracking. And and I think also the size of this is fortunately relatively small compared to some of the other custodian platforms, you know, like Coinbase, Anchorage, obviously no comparison here uh, to what they do and how they work. But, um, you know, the size of this is, you know, in the tens of millions, not the uh, not the billions. So who who's affected by this? Small, small crypto companies. So a lot of companies would have their, they just had the USD, they had USD held at prime trust. So they might have a, an ACH reserve account with, you know, half a million or a million of prime trust. They might have like an instant settlement or an omnibus account with, you know, 500 K or a million or 250 at prime trust. And there were a lot of these kind of smaller companies. And if you looked at their customer list, if you ever use like archive.org, um, the, to, you know, whatever the way back machine. Their customers used to be big folks like, you know, Kraken and like some of the, some of the big names. And now it's a lot of like smaller, again, like seed series A companies like, uh, you know, that big, the, what's the Bitcoin company where you can buy and sell Swan, so, like Swan, you know, the swans of the world. Yeah. That was one of the early indicators back on June 7th, there were reports of, you know, having trouble withdrawing from prime trust and they eventually, I think they transferred ownership of their assets to Bitco, some mix of Bitco and Fortress. Or something, but that so even, Fortress, even back then. So Fortress, Fortress is run by Scott Purcell, who is the old Prime Trust founder. So just uh, putting this out there. Yeah, I've a, I've, I've a a company I invested in. Yeah, some hat. crime there. Yeah, a, co- a company I invested in. Like, hey, we got impacted by Prime Trust, but we're moving off. We're going to Fortress. And I was like, guys, same same person, different company. So, uh, but but it's interesting because actually. They were like, there aren't other options for us to use right now. Right. Like we, it's, you know, the word, it's the worst of the options, but like, there are no other options. So, um, yeah, like wire shut down. You guys remember wire, wire yep. shut down months ago. So I think wire would have been someone else that people could go use, but can't use wire anymore. Uh, all the banks are, are like, can't barely any banks that you can use anymore. So pretty tough situation for new crypto companies getting started today. So just, just to double click into that specifically what you're talking about is being able to receive fiat and like mint or create something on chain that represents that correct that's right yeah 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 the the after silvergate and sen and i can't even remember what the signature version of that was there's basically nothing that facilitates that anymore yep is santiago building that bank feels like that would be a good I, I, I talked to him again today about it he said he's doing it he said a lot of people reached out to him being like look man really like you um, let me just save you the headache. Don't do this. He's and he said he still can do it. So. I mean, this seems like a pretty good business. Mine, it's the crime, and uh, forgetting where the assets are. Like, he I, might be, I mean, he might be able to do it because he does. He lives offshore. He does. He lives uh, not in America. It's close location. Maybe they forgot the pin code to the ledger. That's not. <laughs> Maybe this is just a a case of mistaken, you know, pin codes. That ever happened to do that? No, this <laughs> no, is it's probably the numbers. This is Vance's recurring nightmare that he probably gets like once every three weeks. 
I've had nightmares about ledgers. That's a real thing. Oh, yeah. I'll wallet. I mean, what else is there to say? This is a shame. There was some crime involved. Seems like somebody is at fault here. The fact that the founder moved on and started the same business, also very sketchy. I feel like we need yeah. some investigative journalism with a capital J on this one. Yeah. This is the latest. There's actually kind of a rich history of brokerages reappropriating quiet funds and trying to make it all back in one trade. There was a guy, John Corzine, who was Yeah. Famous. You have you ever heard of him? He used yeah, to be oh, yeah. he was the head honcho at Goldman Sachs. Was it at like, like MF Global or something? MS Global. Yeah. MF. Maybe it was MF. Maybe yeah. MF of those. MF, I think, yeah. 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 But he did the same thing. It was a much larger brokerage. And he I think the irony is he actually did it. He actually placed a good trade that would have eventually paid out. He got it stopped out. He got stopped by regulators. Out. He got stopped out by the regulators, but it would have really paid out. Really? Yeah. What was yeah. his make it all back trade? Like some of trade. He bought he bought I think it was like a, like Euro bonds or something. Euro, I think it was Greek bonds. Yeah. Yeah. Europe yeah. had a, Italian and Greek bonds and they like blew out and like he lost kind of like most of the money. And then he got found out and stopped out. But like, if he had just held them, he would have made a lot of money for both himself and his clients. So, what is the lesson there? Crime doesn't pay, sort of. If you get caught, unless it does, crime doesn't pay if you get caught. <laughs> That's the lesson. Yeah, I don't like Jesus. I mean, it's not obviously the same thing as like holding your client's net worth in FTT maps and oxygen tokens, but. All of these stories are so similar at this point. Like even the prime trust, like we have no exposure. Well, we have some exposure. Somebody's going to buy us. All right, they're pulling out. Okay, the deal's over and we're insolvent. We just need yeah. to not happening. You need, it makes me think you, you really do need some regulations and some, some like forced audits at the custodian level. Yeah, but like... <clears throat> This is why, as a regulated investment advisor, registered investment advisor, you have to keep all of your assets at a qualified custodian. I mean, there are rules in place for this, you know, if you get to a certain size. Obviously, this and most of the clients weren't able to have that designation or didn't have that requirement because they don't, they're not fund managers, they don't have enough assets, all of the above. But this is why you just got to go with the big guys. Uh, I think the other element here, which is interesting, is like, is there a point that DeFi could have solved this? And if they truly had segregated accounts and they truly had, you know, the loss of keys at creation, like, I don't know exactly the details. That'll probably come out in the next couple of weeks. But there is an element of where you can have control of these assets in a DeFi ecosystem that has a wrapper around it, that has all of the stipulations and requirements of a qualified custodian to basically have the best of both worlds, where you have the segregation, you have, you know, the decentralization of these assets that are being held by somebody else and controlled by somebody else, but you still have the KYC, you, you have the AML checks, um, and you have all the safeguards that a qualified custodian would have to have if they were doing this themselves. So I, I think there is actually room for improvement. A lot of that would probably have to come with legislation changes and and maybe that, you know, something that's on the horizon, hopefully, knock on wood. Um, but I, I think, you know, eventually we'll, we'll ultimately get there because there's a better advantage to doing that. Yeah, maybe th maybe that's a good lead in, unless you guys have anything else to say about Prime Trust to Rob Leshner's new venture. Um, so Rob Leshner has a, a new venture called Superstate. And I would, you know, I think maybe even before we get into the weeds and details of what Rob is doing, 
Uh, it's it's sort of a real world asset play, but I think that has the connotation. Many people think about putting, you know, commercial real estate on the blockchain, and that's not necessarily what real world assets look like today. So, Michael Evans, could one of you guys kind of give an overview about, you know, how you think about real world assets and maybe sort of the quality of some of the entrepreneurs that you see coming in, and then we can kind of get into what Rob's actually doing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think. Real world assets comes with so many different flavors. Like to your point, Mike, it could be historically it's let's put apartment buildings on the on the blockchain, and that's uh, um, I think it can span from let's and there's a number of providers now doing this. Like let's have representation of treasury bills on chain, so the people on chain can get access to the yield that's being generated by T bills. Um, I think the other aspect, you know, on the other end of the spectrum is let's do something that's native to like the DeFi ecosystem, let's say it's ETH staking or like, a, a, you know, a, a leveraged ETH staking even, but it's going to be, you know, a 506B fund that is regulated with the same controls that you would have if you were doing this with like a subscription agreement and paperwork, it's going to have the same type of stuff, but it's all going to be represented on chain and therefore sort of in this like permissioned ecosystem. So I think you can kind of have both and call them, um, you know, real world assets on chain. I'd be really, really curious to see, you know, kind of where Rob thinks about the product offerings that he's going to be giving with, with Superstate at Superstate, whatever it's called. Um, it's, and uh, yeah, um, but I think that you can kind of think of the, the, the blending of, okay, we bring something on chain that is represented off chain and historically by, you know, legal agreements, or we create something new and novel that's a product that really should just be like uh, an LP pool, but because we need to go through the same safeguards and attract new potential investors that you know have to go through the same regulated offerings, it's going to be something that looks like an LP pool, but with the same controls that you would have if you were just subscribing to a fund. Um, so I, I think it's kind of both in. So to get into some of the details of Superstate, I'm just reading from the the release here. Um, uh, Rob Leshner, the CEO of Decentralized Lender Compound, submitted filings to U.S. securities regulators for Superstate, a new company that will create a short-term government bond fund using the Ethereum blockchain as a secondary record-keeping tool. So basically, the idea is to bring, you know, we've talked about people in crypto seeking yields that are offered in TradFi now. Fed funds is higher than it's been in quite a long time. And it was only a matter of time, I think, before crypto tried to harvest some of those yields. I think one of the key things to understand here is that the fund is going to rely on a traditional Wall Street transfer agent to keep ownership records, and Ethereum will kind of act as an alternative or a secondary record-keeping service. So before we get into the details, because I actually think it's a, a great uh-huh. idea, and we, we need to bring more collateral in, I think there there's the rub a little bit. Um, so question to you guys, I would assume that this is an issue for all real-world asset type things, but what happens in the event that the Wall Street transfer agent and the Ethereum sort of... Uh, record-keeping service, they, they don't necessarily agree. I mean, that's, uh, depending on who you ask, that's either a benefit or something that makes this, you know, not permissionless, not acceptable as crypto collateral, et cetera. So like in a world where you have a whitelisted access to this asset and the custodian of the actual T-bills or real world assets determine who actually owns it, the only person that can hack you is yourself, you know, or, or the people who are issuing this asset. The other side of that coin is like, let's just say that um, I put a T-bill real world asset in a Uniswap liquidity pool and it gets hacked. Um, 
all of a sudden you can kind of just say, you know what? It didn't actually get hacked. You know, that person still owns that asset. We're going to reissue a token. It kind of upsets a lot of the natural balance that you kind of come to expect with permissionless assets, but these aren't permissionless assets. These are actually, in most cases, shares of a fund, an LP fund, you know, not an LT Uniswap pool, but an actual registered fund either in the Cayman Islands or the US. Um, and so it kind of upsets a little bit of that. And that, that's like one of the less understood parts of this is that if you are not whitelisted, which means you are not KYC, you are not signed up for the fund, you can actually hold these assets. You know, imagine, you know, framework um, going and selling stakes of our fund to people that we didn't know, didn't KYC, didn't file any documents with us. It's the same thing. We, it would be totally legal. There is some interesting kind of middle ground there where you can put all these T-bills on chain. You know, you can put all of them on chain. You can build a lot of them. And then you can have a stablecoin protocol. Um, and there's a couple of these going around. Ondo is building one of them where you can issue a stablecoin against the T-bill. And is that stablecoin part of that fund? Can that stablecoin go to other people that are not KYC'd? You know, a lot of the current, you know, if you look at USDC or USDT, would suggest that that actually could. And so, you know, like the kind of real world asset push is kind of twofold. Number one is bringing all the collateral on chain. That's awesome. But we need to get the collateral moving around, being used on chain. Like the the on chain can't just be like the receipt of like what's going on off chain. And I think the stable coins are going to be a big part of this. And as I'm looking at this, I'm just also looking at, you know, USDC kind of continuing to bleed out. Like I would be very surprised if this wasn't part of their new strategy, but um but maybe not. Just to double <clears throat> just to hammer that home or double click into it. In this example of the T-bills or framework LP tokens living on chain, you kind of have two options. You either make them non-transferable and only the transfer agent like contract on chain can touch the contracts uh, that represent the tokens on chain, or you have them live in a permissioned ecosystem where it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with USDC, like wherever the native minting happens, that's where the canonical example of USDC is. If you're using a bridge to get there, it's just not the same experience. It's not the same you know, representation. If every single transaction has to go through the transfer agent, let's say you're in a permission wall garden experience of permission DeFi, you've been KYC, you've got, I don't know, framework tokens, you've got T-Bill tokens, you've got like Apple tokens, and they all live in this ecosystem. But every single time you want to make a transaction, it has to go through an intermediary contract that is represented by the transfer agent. That's not necessarily DeFi, but that's kind of like the other option, the other available option right now. Uh, and and so I, I, we still have to figure out how to do that. It's almost like how you can have something live natively on chain and a transaction on chain has the same stature and status as something that is regulated and adjudicated by the transfer agent. Like we're not there yet. And, and I think frankly, like rules will have to change for that to be the case. Just in the same way that like when you used to sign something online, there was a law that was passed for digital signatures to be represented in the same legal stature as physical signatures, which is why DocuSign and HelloSign and all those things actually started to exist. It, it, we need the same type of uh, designation here for blockchain transactions that have the same effect as financial transactions. Just to, like just to expand on, on that even more so... Um... If you if you think about USDC, you know, in your retail, like like what do you, how are you getting asked? So you're usually on Coinbase, 
you're taking USD, you're converting it to USDC, and then you're putting it on chain. And the big thing there is that you have distribution from Coinbase. And that's what allowed, you know, USDC and USDT to go to, you know, 100, 120 billion plus of stablecoin market cap. This is a different sales process. What you need in this sales process is you need Robert Leshner, you know, in a suit going to these Wall Street institutions saying, hey, put some of your cash management, you know, on, on chain and we'll give you additional yields. We'll, you know, do strangles, you know, we'll increase the yield in some way. Um, but like, you know, you're going to have people selling to Wall Street institutions, trying to get them to LP or put their, their, you know, LP tokens on chain. So that's the first one. And, you know, if you think about like what Leshner won't have is he won't have like Coinbase being able to mint these T-bills to retail. So you're not going to have that natural distribution advantage, but you're still going to be able to run an asset manager at a far lower cost, at least we think than the traditional asset managers in the space, just because all of your clearing, your settlement, your compliance, your tracking, you know, that's going to be on chain. So I think that's like pretty interesting. The other side of that coin is we talk to a lot of these real world asset managers and there's probably like 10 of them. The the entrepreneurs in these things are super talented. The Ondo guy, he's from Goldman, you know, Hashnote has like DRW behind them. Um, Robert Lesher is like very well known. He can get in the door with any Wall Street institution he wants. We think there's probably like in the next couple of years, at least 10 billion of pipeline, maybe 100 billion, you know, on the table. And if you look at all the real world assets on chain today, it's only a quarter billion. And so like, there's a lot of growth that you can get. Um, but the business model and what it ends up looking like, it's probably somewhere between like what Bitwise is today and what Circle is today. You know, it's not quite as dynamic on the distribution side as Circle. You're not going to get that natural flywheel of retail being able to mint this stuff. But it's not quite as slow and, and cumbersome as like, you know, a traditional fund and running that. Um, because there is some reflexivity to having these things on chain. And if you can have a stable coin against them, you can get cheaper leverage because borrowing on chain is cheaper than off, off chain right now. Like there's certainly interesting things, but this is all extremely bullish. And frankly, it's all happening on ETHL1. The the clear delineation here, just a, uh, an additional point is stable coins have a different designation versus what we're talking about here, which are going to be securities. Like the, these are you know, represented as, they're not going to be misconstrued as, they, they will be securities. And so they just have to go through different safeguards. And I, I think, you know, the answer here to make this as distributed and, and um, uh, available as possible is some representation of an ATS-like product that has a securities exchange that lives naturally on chain. And I think there would have to be, you know, once again, rules that ha that are changed to be able to enable that fact. Um, but that would be sort of the Uniswap equivalent of how you'd be able to transact and interact with these things on chain. I have maybe a, a silly question here, but how will the payments from interest on the bonds be remitted to owners of the LP shares? Like, is that done on chain or is that not done on chain? So th this is actually one of the cooler parts. So talking to a lot of these people, um, you know, the the real world asset entrepreneurs, they're like, the reason asset management is expensive and you can't build a lot of products, you know, even though they should exist or would be attractive to people, is because like you have like a million holders of these, you know, call it like high yield strategies, and you separate them all into their component parts, and then you waterfall them all down, which costs money, and then the bank takes their fee, which costs even more money. And by the time you actually do all of this, like the expense ratio is super high. It's not worth it. Because you can do all of this shit on chain. Like he's like, we can, you know, these people are like, we can actually design new financial products that would be too expensive to do off chain. 
And so I think that's actually like one of the really compelling reasons is, you know, he's like, these people are like, we'll put bonds on chain, we'll put stocks on chain, we'll do all that stuff. It's pretty interesting. It's a big market. It can be solved and, and you know, like it'll grow the, the crypto ecosystem. But being on blockchain rails allows you to design new real world asset financial products that you can't off chain. And like, that's kind of the thing that you hear universally when you talk to these people. And I think that is just like incredibly awesome. The, the recognition of that fact alone is why so many of these things happen to be popping up right now. A, lo a lot of times, like we have to tell entrepreneurs, like, here's how this works. Here's why this would be interesting. Like having the entrepreneurs tell us, like, it's way too expensive and TradFi to do. Like we can actually do this on chain. Like, here's what you don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of that happening right now. We're, we're kind of on the fence if these are like venture backable opportunities, if it's like just an asset manager. But I, I think if you build a winning one, you know, Tether made more money or is on track to make more money than BlackRock this year. So there, there's something there. That's nuts. I guess the what I'm trying to get a sense of is one of the things that's a, been a big problem for DeFi is just the lack of solid collateral in the system. So I guess what I'm trying, I don't, I'm, can't tell if I'm trying to fit a square peg into a round hole here, but, you know, if you had LP shares in a bond fund that just owned like three month USD bills, you know, that I could see being super useful in a DeFi protocol as collateral. And especially if you're getting sort of almost like a Steve, like rebasing type structure, you just had on-chain payments that got remitted to you. But I, now I'm wondering if that's actually how it would work because I guess the interest would get paid in. Well, so, so let me, let me, this is just like me thinking through product wise, how that could work. Let's yeah. say you've got one of these asset managers or like a consortium of asset managers that comes through and builds, instead of the like inability to transfer things on chain, they go with the walled garden approach. Okay, great. So you have all these things, these LP tokens, these treasure bill, uh, T-bill tokens, these whatever tokens that represent collateral and things in the real world. What if that ecosystem also has its own native uh, stablecoin and that own native stablecoin is something that just lives within the four walls of that permission to ecosystem. And that is also being able to be used and they have a lending protocol. So then you could also borrow in that native stablecoin against the tokens that you have represented in that real world. And it's basically like taking all the concepts that we have in, you know, existing DeFi and like representing them in this, you know, small permissioned ecosystem. But what if one of those is a stablecoin swapping mechanism where you can take the native ecosystem stablecoin that has to stay within those four walls and swap it for something like DAI or USDC. And then you can have the representation in that permissioned ecosystem, but also something that's transferable outside those four walls. Yeah. And like in this walled garden ecosystem, you might have your own perps protocols. You might have your own options protocols. Like think of it kind of like Binance versus Coinbase versus on chain. They're kind of like distinct. Like we can't, you know, as American citizens get on Binance with our KYC but like we exist within the same continuum of crypto just trading hands. Like it, it's just gonna, you know, be, I think very positive for crypto. And like, think about Michael Howell, you know, and all of his like, you know, high quality collateral is basically the driver of liquidity and price of the asset. Like mm -hmm. if we just get more of these things on chain, it's gonna be really good. I think this could have an interesting second order impact of driving the, in so uh, of driving institutions to not just like offer crypto products like Bitcoin's ET like the Bitcoin ETF, but actually have them push them to start thinking about on-chain products. And I think um, like when I'm reading about Leshner's, what they're building, it's identical to what Franklin Templeton is building with their on-chain US government 
money fund. Um, it's it's the exact same product is is my understanding of this. And I think when so Lester's doing it, other Vance, you were naming some other people doing it. Franklin Templeton is making a big push in. You could it doesn't make sense now, but like I don't think it happens now. But you know, market starts going back up. People start seeing DeFi being a real thing again. You could start seeing some of these like huge asset managers and investment management firms starting to like toe the line between on-chain and off-chain products. Keep, keep in mind, stable coins also made no sense when they were first proposed, right. like in the last bear market. You're like, why would I put my dollar? I have a dollar in my bank account. Is there like, what? It's like, it always kind of, you got to squint a little bit to see the future. And I don't know, like these things coming on chain is just awesome. I mean, it's also possible, just just think about it this way. Maybe even my example is a little bit too much, too many steps. What if instead of you minting a native stablecoin in that permissioned ecosystem, you just mint USDC and you're automatically building a loan position against your real world assets, all that lives on chain, but the USDC is something that's transferable and basically the substrate to be able to transfer value between you know public and permissioned DeFi. Yeah, it's. I think one one thing that's a little bit different in between, uh, you know, some of these attempts versus maybe some of the scar tissue that formed in 2019 era is that a lot of the uh, a lot of big financial institutions have proven that they understand this technology. And their understanding is far far ahead of where it was, just from my own anecdotal experience at that time. I've, I've talked about Visa a lot on this podcast, but they've done a lot of really good work. They had one of their one guy on their team, Mustafa, put out this great thread about like modular versus monolithic architectures. And, you know, that was not the kind of thing that you were seeing from some of these larger TradFi teams back in the day. So everybody, everybody level, levels up in the bear market. Yeah. Big agree. Do you guys want to talk a little and shout out to Rob? I mean, it's a, it's, he's a, he's a tremendous yeah. entrepreneur and he's moved the space forward quite a lot. So just excited for him on this one. Yep. Um, and shout out to Jason, the new CEO. He's our boy, too. Hell night. Jay Hob. Jay Hobby. Yeah, it's a fine name, I guess. All right, do you guys want to talk a little bit about Azuki? I mean, it's good. Mike, Mike, what happened there? <laughs> I, I disclaimer, I told I told uh, everyone this before, but I just got off of Twitter Spaces with Luca from Pudgy Penguins, and I'm, I'm all bold up on the Pudgies, so maybe take this with a little bit of a grain of salt, but... There was a there was a new issuance of Azuki's. This uh, you know, there was a new mint basically for Azuki's this this past week. It's called All Elementals. It was very hyped. People were very excited about it, and it ended up from my looking at it just being Azuki's facing a different direction. And I think a lot of people were pretty upset, you know, just in terms of you know what does this actually mean in terms of the fundamentals of the project. You know, there was an "Are you kidding me?" kind of vibe. I, I'd be curious to to get your guys' sense of of the response. I don't even think they're well, facing a different direction. I think they're no. I think it's the same same direction. They're. I mean, they're aside from it, there are a few new traits like a firebolt or something. But yeah, I, you literally can't. I was flipping back and forth between them on Blur. You literally can't tell the difference. And immediately, I mean, I will say very impressive. They were able to mint out. I think it was like thirty eight or forty million dollars for yeah. For, that's a lot of money. Very impressive in this. Very impressive. The counter, though, is the community absolutely tore them apart. The price of Azuki's fell basically forty percent instantly. Um, uh, I don't know. It brings into question a lot of things. Like Azuki, so they were trying to raise Azuki's was trying to raise at the same time that 
Bored Apes were trying to raise. And Bored Apes raised that huge round. And um, and Nazuki wasn't able to get the raise done. So imagine, like, a, take NFTs out of this. Imagine you're one company and your main competitor does a huge raise. And now they're doing all these things. They're building games and all that kind of stuff. And you aren't able to do that. You probably are like, oh, crap, we need to go hire the devs and get all these people. And so we need money, you know? Oh, my God, that's an ugly chart. The devs are dead. Um, I just have no idea about this. Like, I feel like we just talked about everyone leveling up in the bear market. I feel like the NFT community has not done that. I don't know. I don't even know what the NFT community is anymore. Is it like PFPs? Is it art? Games is, you know, taking longer than expected, but like that could be a boon to it. But it also doesn't feel like it's like relevant to this. We, we have our NFT specialist, Mike Ablito, to explain why NFTs are toys on, toys on Amazon. So it, this is not... Um, Honestly, talking, to, yeah, this is definitely not financial advice. But do you remember a little while ago where there was this discussion about our NFTs equity, our NFTs equity in this community? And from my perspective, I think that's been definitively answered. I don't, I don't think that's what NFTs are. Definitely not. But do you remember Doodles raised at some ludicrous valuation a little while ago? And uh, that was led by Alexis Ohanian, though. So it doesn't really, doesn't really count. So. Oh, no, but I think there's a there's a compelling what? there's a compelling there's like a, if if you think about these things as IP, I, I'm not a huge believer of the decentralized Disney thing that gets tossed around. But honestly, look at what Pudgies have done. I mean, they sold like five hundred thousand dollars worth of penguins on Amazon within you know the first twenty four hours or something like that. They've got you know they kind of broke down on the spaces like their monetization strategy, and it mints is like a part of it. You know, secondary sales and royalties are like a very small, like EBITDA kind of bump. It's like the cherry on the cake. But they think of it from like, uh, you know, licensing sort of agreements. Uh, they actually make money off the content that they produce on like Snapchat and Instagram and stuff like that. They have a very clear roadmap. And I think there is a good way to do this and a not so great way to do this. And the what I walked away thinking is if you're relying on financing your community via new mints, you're just diluting the brand value that you have. Uh, I thought it was a betrayal of the community. So, so next, next time, next time, Mizuki's. So the other, the other aspect here isn't just like, oh, we're going to go off and mint some Mizuki's and I was going to I would buy one of those. This is like, I'd buy one of those. These are cute. These yeah, are cute. they're cute. Yeah. So uh, the, the, it does feel like, I think, at least from my understanding of what's been going on, that the community was left in the dark on this. And Everybody feels a little bit betrayed, obviously, with the sell-off, but because there isn't much differentiation, there's not really anything that's different uh, about these two different mids. You thought you had one of 10,000, now you have one of 20,000. Uh, like, they raised $37 million worth of beef. How much do you think they're going to raise next time they do any mint whatsoever? Zero. Like, just destroying your customer relationship is like the death nail in, in this entire ecosystem. And and so I think, you know, that's definitely lesson number one. Lesson number two is like, what's the use case? Where is the utility? If it if you're really just gonna come out with the same artwork and the same thing, then there's lack of creativity on that front. I think artwork is is definitely and has definitely proven to be a valuable aspect of NFTs and people care about that. It is sort of like a community uh and a bond that people have with their NFTs, especially, you know, ones that are used more as PFPs. But I do kind of go back to the same fundamental question is like, what is the utility of this thing? And this is what Board Apes is working on. You know, there's games, you've got like the whole Dookie Dash component, 
Um, you know, maybe there's going to be some content strategies eventually. You think the same with what you paint with? Like, what is the next leveling up? Uh, if you do own, you know, one of these things in this community, I don't think it's equity, but you know, you're a part of the community. So what does that actually mean? It's kind of like the, so what question? Um, I think that's kind of the big, like question mark that I have broadly for NFTs. And, and I think that that's something that has to get solved before we can have a path forward. There was, there was just one more, one more note that kind of got me thinking. I don't know if you guys have ever dug into like any luxury sort of businesses. There's a great acquired episode on LVMH and there's kind of like a lot of the canonical rules of business are sort of flipped upside down when it comes to luxury. Luca made a really interesting, this is the last time I'll (laughs) point all reference from him, but he made a pretty interesting point. It's a double side, kind of a dual edged sword of NFT communities. He said, when you're building a brand, one of the most difficult things actually is kind of in year one and two of getting anyone to care about the brand that you're building. So getting those first like 5,000 people, that's that's a big advantage of doing an NFT type community. The flip side of that is that after a couple of years when you have those people, you, you have to continuously kind of serve them and not feel like you're abandoning the core community. So it's kind of like this early jump start, but then it almost feels like there's a ceiling because you don't want to go too mainstream and abandon the 5,000 people that really loved you in the beginning. And it's just an interesting, interesting. There's another aspect of that from, from that podcast, but also in, in just other information, scarcity when it comes to luxury is, is a core component so much so that in Italy, it is now illegal for handbag companies to burn their excess product. Hmm. They used to, that handbags you know the leather handbags that you know coach or prada was making they would burn them when they wouldn't sell out for the season instead of having excess inventory that degrades the brand and and brings sure they could have sold them for 40 percent 50 percent 60 percent less maybe um and so now what they do with them is there's there's companies that go out and specifically control the supply of those those products so it'll be like i don't know a random target in oklahoma gets one of those luxury brand items per month and they control it and send it out. But the point is it's all about manufacturing scarcity for this brand. Mm -hmm. Cause once you have that brand appeal, the best way for you to lose it is to dilute the brand. And I mean, this is a showcase in that. Yeah. I don't have much else to say. I just agree with you. I think it was not the best move. I'm just looking at NFT floor, right? This this is just a, a hate crime. <laughs> I just feel bad like that retail was the most into NFTs and it just felt felt like the absolute worst actors were in the NFT space. Maybe not the absolute worst, but some of the worst. It was the new hype thing. You know, it was it had been talked about in previous cycles, but it hadn't really there was like crypto kitties, but it hadn't really caught on and it the hypiest areas, right, are always going to attract the, the most grifters. But there are there are a couple of good, you know, solid NFT entrepreneurs out there. So I guess we'll just have to Gary V or Jerry V or whatever his name is. Whatever happened, I, I wasn't guy. necessarily thinking about him, but yeah. <laughs> have you guys heard of character AI? Have you guys been following this? No. No. Oh, you got a, you got a whitelist to get us on. You got a mint. Let's oh, go. Ashley, I have, I have, I have seen some of these. Have you seen this? Yeah. You remember when ChatGPT completely took over Twitter, and it was the only thing on Twitter for like a like a couple of weeks. 
I'm not on TikTok. Are you guys on TikTok? Any of you guys? No. no? So TikTok has been 100% taken over by this thing, Character AI. Let me show you their numbers. There. Look at this. They launched a couple months ago. Oh, you can't see this. Look at it. You see this? 100 million. This is a, this is a similar web. 100 million visits oh in March. 170 million visits in April. 280 million visits in May. I'll show you the website. For anyone listening, it's not, not super impressive. So you basically log in and you can talk to these characters. So you can get like an AI work study buddy, an AI assistant, your no-nonsense assistant. You can talk to Elon Musk, like, hey, Elon, like, why did you buy Twitter? You can plan a trip, write a story, etc. You can talk to famous people. So you can like ask Mark Zuckerberg anything. And it pulls all this information. So how do they have 280 million visits? How are they growing at 6% a month? Crime. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it's crime. <laughs> Ooh. People are basically just texting these AIs. And they're... Yeah, so I'm not going to describe some of the content no, that's yeah. being discussed, but go on Twitter and type in character AI and you'll see the conversations that are happening. It made me real bearish. <laughs> Look. Let oh, is that bearish? I mean, I don't know. In, oh, yeah, the, in the beginning, people were like, people only use the internet for porn. I got news for you. You know, look at the most viewed websites on the internet. After <laughs> Ellen, Mike. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. While we're doing the uh, the chart corner segment, let me share another chart. We good now? Yeah. yeah. I mean. Yo, you just wait till ChatGPT five comes out. Oh, you just no. ChatGPT five and a third. It's like I don't really care, care about that. Like, I kind of wonder how much more this uh, this AI hype cycle. Did you see someone raise it? You, someone raised one point three billion dollars today. I was watching. I was uh, first of all, that's insane. They raised one point three billion on four billion, and in their press release, they announced uh, the amount they raised the investors. And the amount of GPUs that they had bought with the money. It's well, insane. but that's that's why people are raising this money right now, right? Is because the GPUs are so in demand. Right. No, so no, it, no it, one, no one, no one got the GPUs. It does. It doesn't matter if you raise one point three billion dollars if you don't have you don't signed have the GPU arms yeah. with the company that's selling you those GPUs. So I, I was watching the... Uh, By the way, that's why the amount of corporate VC, if you also look in these deals, the corporate amount of corporate VC is at like an all-time high. I I think the high-level information is... um there's And there's two, the, there's two reasons for that. One is like they're all scared about AI and they want AI in their strategy. But the second is because these... It's so valuable. It's so valuable for a startup to have a uh, someone with GPUs basically give them the GPUs. So... It's like money is free right now in AI funding, but GPUs are the mo are the hottest commodity. So you'll take a lower valuation, you'll take less money if you can get a corporate VC who has GPU access on your cap table. I mean, the corporate VCs have what I would call an unfortunate track record. Um, I know they do. You know, we work with some. You're cool if you know who we are, but the rest of you just I, I like man. There have been some bad investments historically. What do you think the best? You're an LPN framework. I really respect you, but if you're anyone else, <laughs> we don't have anyone else as LPs. I don't know. 
I have, I actually almost helped design a corporate uh, VC sort of structure. It's like one of the last projects that I did as a consultant. I don't think there is a good structure. No, there's no good structure. It's, I mean, the number one problem is, is uh, purely compensation. So I was literally about to say the only model that I've seen that actually works is Google, Google ventures, because they're completely, they're, they're basically like a one LP, uh, venture firm and they don't have any real information sharing. They're completely separate entity. Just that the relationship is capital from Google and they incentivize everybody just like regular venture investors. That, that's like the one model that I've seen work. Yeah. The, the, the reasons I've seen it not work are like the, the price, like one, just compensation. It's like the amount of money you can make as a VC very quickly, you start to bump into like what a CEO gets paid and that doesn't exactly foot super well in an organization. So just right there, you have a disadvantage, but then your objective as a corporate VC is to do things other than just pure financial return. You're supposed to fit it into the corporate strategy. And what if the corporate strategy at the time doesn't necessarily mesh with the financial opportunities that you see as a VC? And it's just kind of a brutal cocktail, to be honest. But or what if the corporate strategies change? Yeah, what if yeah. Yeah. Lots of lots of issues with it. It was actually really popular around the the dot com bubble. There were tons yep. of corporate VCs. Oh yeah. They yeah. didn't end super well. Yeah. Not, yeah, didn't didn't end that well. Spoiler alert to anybody who hasn't read about that. Yeah. The the other one that I saw on the corporate VC side was uh, Databricks bought Mosaic ML for 1.2 billion. But if you dig into it, yeah. they paid with all stock, and the stock of Databricks was valued at 38 billion. It's uh, it just it feels like there's so much like smoke and mirrors out there right now, where it's like all the VCs need to raise a new fund, all the software companies need need to figure out how to slow the pretty serious decline in their revenue and decline specifically in new revenue. Um, and like AI is this thing that's like amorphous that you can kind of make it seem like it's kind of anything, but also just like encompassing of, of basically everything. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And now you have SoftBank riding to the rescue with even more money. Wild. Awesome. There was a, I saw an article about him. Uh, did you did you see this? It was the Financial Times, maybe or something like that. How he had kind of a come to Jesus moment, really doubted himself, but now he's back on track, baby. Yes, I too have started talking to God when we had bad investment. <laughs> are, you, are you there, Jesus? Uh, it's me, Vance. You get yes, I know. Uh. Um, last, last story I kind of wanted to get your guys' opinion on. Do you want to talk a little bit about alts and specifically Solana, Cardano, Polygon? So there was an announcement a little while ago. I mean, it, we should also talk about Ripple as well. So the, one of the, we talked, I think it was last week about just Bitcoin dominance and Bitcoin dominance has been screaming up and everyone was sort of pro- proclaiming the death of alts and how they're just going to get pummeled into oblivion. A little while ago, there was an announcement from Robinhood. I think it was back in the beginning of June. Yeah, June 9th. Uh, they announced that they're going to stop their support of a couple of alts. Uh, they named Solana, Cardano, and Polygon. That would be effective June 27th. So there were these arguments that were getting constructed that a whole bunch of that supply was going to get brought online and those assets were basically just going to get annihilated. You know, we're standing here on June 29th, so a couple of days after this, and it kind of turned out that that event was a nothing burger. And 
as you were saying before we got on here, Ripple's price action is not trading like it's about to be listed as an illegal security. So I'm just curious what you guys kind of think about the state of alts in general. Ripple is higher today than it was when it got charged with the unregistered securities lawsuit. So that's one thing. Number two, um, there used to be when you would, and this has really only happened, I think, once with Ripple, but like you would get instantly delisted from all important global exchanges. Like, you know, no one would talk to you or care about you or trade your coin. It was assumed that you were dead. Like being called an unregistered security was a death blow. Now it's kind of just like Robinhood and the normie platforms will probably delist you. There's going to be a little bit of overhang, which the market makers are going to sell. It's like a 20% down price action day. But if this is like the worst case scenario for being called like an unregistered security, like it, it really isn't that bad. Obviously, you shouldn't make unregistered securities or do any of that or not financial advice, whatever. But like, I don't know. Gone are the days of like Coinbase delisting you on like just the whiff of a SEC lawsuit. It's just a different ballgame now. Yeah, I think a lot of that will depend on what happens with Coinbase. And and I think that that's maybe one of the other pieces of data here is the backdrop. I think that was filed this morning. Maybe it was last night um, of Coinbase seeking a motion to dismiss the the suit uh, with the SEC. And I'm, I'm definitely no uh, lawyer nor a legal expert. Uh, it seems like the strategy that they are taking is something that's pretty unique and pretty robust. Um, I don't know what the chances are of that actually getting dismissed or actually, you know, having any effect on the case, but we do know that they're going to be fighting this tooth and nail to the end, which I think is why the tides have turned from, you know, back in the day with a single asset in, in the form of Ripple versus now something that Coinbase views as being existential to their entire business. So it, it's going to be a while, most likely, for any sort of decision, but you know, it's taken years for Ripple that you can play out, but it, it will be something that I think, you know, as this stuff gets figured out, there's going to be changes, but nothing's really going to change in the meantime. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. There's a, uh, one of the BlockWorks podcast thousand X is with a guy, Avi Fellman and Joda Van Borg, and it, it goes live on the empire feed. So shout out, shout out, Yano. but Jonah made a really interesting point on that podcast where, the sort of point of maximum momentum in the SEC's favor actually comes out, happens when the enforcement action is announced. Because the dynamic there is it's very asymmetric. It's kind of a sucker punch. You know, Coinbase isn't, they don't know that this enforcement is coming. The market doesn't know that the enforcement is coming. So that's kind of peak FUD and max fear. And uh, I would actually say it's it's like seven days or like a month before it comes out. Because uh, I think every single time when you've seen these announcements, when you see like the actual stuff that comes out, it's kind of like, oh, okay, all right, well, now we know what we're up against. But the fear and the uncertainty of what that could be is what really drives market action, at least from what I've seen on some of these moments of like the day where it actually gets announced, like not that much happens. Remember what we were talking about? Like marches were up when when the Coinbase suit happened. Uh, was it Coinbase or Binance? One of the two. Um, so I, I don't know. I think, you know, we, I think I've said this before or used this analogy before, but it's kind of like in the scary movies or like the horror movies when you finally see like the monster or like the killer at the end and you're like, oh, it's actually not that scary. Like we're, we're kind of at that point right now. Yeah. Yeah. You could be, and I'm, you know, I'm not a trader. I don't pay enough attention to like really look at price action around these things. But the, the other part of that, uh, so you might be totally right there, Michael. The, the second part of the point though, is that 
the company where the enforcement action is like, let's say the SEC is levies this enforcement action against Coinbase, they haven't had time to defend themselves yet or marshal counter arguments. And there was, it was actually completely unrelated to, you know, this particular action brought by the SEC, but Coinbase won a case at the Supreme Court last week that I think actually moved the market. So one thing that we often forget about is that courts are actually needed to decide these sorts of things. And yeah, I don't even want to say this, like knock on wood here, but it seems like there we might get a little bit luckier. <laughs> you know, I, I was just talking to Jason. I'm so weird. Right at this point, I can't even say good. Mike is now the most yeah. super superstitious. Thing. <laughs> yeah, but but I mean that's that's the um, I I think there are other like yeah. I just I just feel like I don't know I'm getting good vibes about it. So. Did you guys see Jay Clayton on CNBC? Yep, heater of interview. Love Jay. Well, Jay, Jay wasn't that nice to us when I was about to say, do you think you would have said anything of the sort of that in 1780? Yeah. No, funny when, when he was there, he's like, we need a new, you know, friends like, we got to get this guy out. We need someone new. And then we got Gary Gensler. It's like, Jay's our boy. Jay's our boy. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the I think it's a lot, it's a lot easier to say that when you don't have the role. And I think he, he has a lot more clarity and, and both sides of the perspective now. I mean, he's also worked inside some crypto companies. He he he, he was an advisor at I think Fireblocks, maybe one other. Dude, th- that interview is is uh, is notable because he trashes Gensler and says like it's an abuse of power and all this yeah. stuff. It's also funny because it's it's a six minute interview. It starts with, "So Jay, like, how are you feeling about the Ukraine war? Like, do you think the counteroffensive is going to succeed?" He's like, "Yeah, like he's like." pining on like the counteroffensive and like you know backmud and we'll take that back and it pivots to crypto like that job mm-hmm. of like chief pontificator that's a great gig if you can get it <laughs> yeah true um i feel like you'd like that vance man i got oh, you things. ukraine ask me about ukraine yeah let's dig into ukraine <laughs> dude just give me the john madden ipad playbook <laughs> <laughs> Without the line, no, no. <laughs> How are we feeling about RFK, guys? Oh, that, that honestly was another heater of an interview. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, maybe came out last night. No. Yeah. Uh, it just, it, it's all of his talking points on his perspective on vaccines, but it just like sets everybody straight. The reason I don't like him is the reason I think a lot of crypto Twitter does like him, which is he fe- he feels like nobody would know him if it wasn't for like Chamath and Sachs just putting this dude on a pedestal um, and and pumping this guy. I mean, also his name is Kennedy, so that's fair. But so people would say that. I mean, Wait. I, I like him because he's like the real burn it down candidate. I liked him. He has his shirt. You see him, his, his shirt off flexing. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I mean, the weight on that bar, that's a little suspect. I think that was like a 25 and a 5. Yeah, it was 95-pound bench press, but whatever. I'm not ready to get into politics on Bell Curve yet. We're also, we're also... All right, here's the... Here's the months away from the election. We gotta... We gotta, we gotta we're a long ways away. It's, it's game time, though. I know. But you know what I find interesting is, so he here's a candidate that has gathered some steam. He has kind of these unorthodox beliefs. And what does he decide to do? He decides to tap into the Bitcoin audience and i just think that's a very interesting development that he views this as large enough that he should take a very pro positive stance on it that's meaningful that's super meaningful 
let, 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 let's say, let's, um, let's use another example. Let's say Spotify in another world or frankly in the future starts getting a ton of heat for Joe Rogan, right? They get a, a lot of heat for this guy being exclusive on the platform. They decide to side with Joe Rogan. What else would it make sense for them to do? It would make sense for them to tap Bitcoin. It's, it will become, I really think Bitcoin will become this, this political sort of movement as much as it is a financial asset. I thought it might say whatever you want as as crazy as it is. And if you need people to back you up, you just go, and I like Bitcoin too. Hey, I'm <laughs> telling you, yeah. <laughs> You're like, eh, I've said some crazy shit, but he is pro Bitcoin. You're I'm either only for a tweet in this market, bullish Bitcoin. <laughs> or if you ever get canceled, bullish Bitcoin. Exactly. Bullish Bitcoin. Why do you ask, Vance? <laughs> You're hosting an RFK. Uh, yes, right to a dinner. No, no. I mean, I'm, I haven't donated to RFK, but I think he's interesting. Yeah. Saw Nick well, Tomi- Nick uh, Tomino from One Confirmation had an interesting thread on um, on DeSantis. So, yep. Ho- hosted something for him too. Yeah. Mm. While while we're on the subject of uh, non-consensus, unorthodox beliefs, I'd like to create a petition to turn at least ten minutes of this podcast into a UFO. Type podcast if mm. folks want oh, to debate. Did you watch the Did you watch the documentary? Which I mean, this is an old documentary. I just watched the. I think it was on Hulu. Did you watch the Alien documentary? The It was a banger. I'm. I'm in. Is that the uh, Bob Lazar one? It was. Uh, no, actually, it was on. It was like a three part three part series. I'll send it to you guys. This is a good one. Yeah. I'm reading a three all. three body problem right now at Mike's recommendation. That's a good one. That's a good one. That's a, I like that one. Yeah. I hope you uh, told me to read it. (laughs) Well, I didn't actually read it. I I don't think I read that. I don't think there's enough content for 10 minutes, Mike, but, uh, you know, if you ever want to, you know, revisit current events on UFOs, I will. I've got, I've got one down the rabbit hole for you guys. One of my buddies sent me this thing apparently this whistleblower came forward on 4chan and just answered all like it just came forth and it was this massive i read it on the plane took me like an hour to actually read this thing it's pretty good it's it's a good read just show notes on 4chan i'll link i'll link it in the show notes yeah it's on reddit as well (laughs) oh boy uh rfk and 4chan in one episode all right yeah there we go i think that's it i think that's it good wrapping place all right later Peace.